You're listening to The Thrive Podcast, where every week we dive into a practical, tactical tip to bring you from a life of simply surviving to thriving. It's personal development for the everyday girl who is done with coasting through her days, done with feeling like she's missing out on the deeper meaning of her own life, and done with mediocrity once and for all. Because it's not enough to simply survive, you deserve to thrive. Welcome back to Thrive. If you've ever felt your palms sweating, head swirling, and heart beating out of your chest at the thought of speaking on stage or starting a conversation, you're not alone. Professional speaker, author, and coach Marcus Bales used to be overcome with it all until he made a mess his message and rewrote his story. Marcus drops practical tips today for overcoming social anxiety, building speaking confidence, and starting conversations with ease. You'll walk away feeling more at peace with the prospect of putting yourself out there, whether that's on a big stage or just on your next conversation with a friend. Stay tuned through this episode. Drop it five stars if you like what you're listening to and welcome Marcus. Hey, Erica. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on Thrive. I was just saying to you before we hit record, I'm really pumped that we're bringing this conversation to everybody because I think it'll be a really helpful episode on something that is not really talked about all that much. Like you said, we talk about building confidence. We talk about becoming a better public speaker, but in terms of hitting that underlying root of social anxiety and really the ripple effect that that can have on so many other facets of our life, there's not really that much conversation about it online. So I think this will be really helpful and awesome to bring to everyone listening in. Absolutely. I'm super excited to be on today. I love talking about social anxiety. It's a topic near and dear to my heart. So hopefully we can help a couple people uh, listening today. For sure. For sure. So your story in particular is really interesting because I know you talk very openly about being a super socially anxious kid and then transitioning to now, I mean, you're a published author, but you're a public speaker and that's what you do for a living is speak in front of people. So clearly something happened along the way to go from being this self-proclaimed, really anxious, anxiety-ridden kid to where you are now. So walk us through to kick us off what your story is and your background and how that transition sort of happened, because I'm sure a lot of people can relate to being that really, uh, socially anxious or maybe shy or nervous or whatever it might be kid to now where you are speaking on stages and doing this literally as your job. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, So obviously it was not kind of a straight linear journey to get from socially anxious kid to professional speaker uh, and to explain everything that happened, you know, obviously it filled an entire book. So I'll give this synopsized version. Uh, so obviously when I was a kid, I had severe social anxiety to the point where it affected my schooling. It affected my social life, um, all the way to being actually put into special reading classes in sixth grade, because I didn't have the ability to read out loud. I knew that I could read, but I couldn't read to my teachers. I couldn't read to my classmates. So I was put in these special reading classes, which, uh, at the time felt humiliating, you know? going into a room away from my other classmates, which only furthered my isolation. Um, and eventually, you know, really started to weigh on my own self-confidence. Uh, then one day my mom saw me reading a book to my brother and was like, hey, if he's reading that book, maybe he actually can read. So she went to my teachers and said, hey, I think you should give him a silent reading test. Uh, 
They did. And I scored right within the normal range for my grade. And even at that early age, back in sixth grade, it was a very profound moment for me. And I understood that if I didn't start to kind of overcome that anxiety, I would be left behind. And though I won't say it was this profound moment of clarity, it was something that stuck out to me throughout my life. And from that moment, I really started to take small strides towards becoming a better speaker, educating myself about social anxiety, learning what it was. It's not something that many kids know exists. And you think that you're alone in your feelings. So when you figure out that other people have this same fear and they suffer from the same kind of feelings that you have, it gives you a little bit more comfort. And then you can start to branch out into things where you learn to become a better speaker. So throughout my schooling all the way through college, I really focused on becoming a better speaker, overcoming that underlying anxiety. Uh, and eventually I was picked up by an event company. At the time I was doing some DJ work uh, and they brought me on as their newest DJ. And I very quickly found a mentor uh, in the owner of the company who kind of took me under his wing, taught me how to be a better speaker in front of hundreds or thousands of people. Uh, and soon enough, I was, you know, giving, uh, you know, MC work at large corporate functions. Uh, and I was speaking in front of thousands of people on any given weekend. Eventually, that kind of morphed into becoming an actual professional speaker, where I give hour to two hour long speeches at conferences, trade shows, and other events um, every single week. And that was kind of the final moment that I realized maybe that weakness that I thought I had was actually one of my greatest strengths, because I feel like my anxiety actually allows me to perform better. Uh, and, and that's kind of the synopsized version of, of how you get from socially anxious kid to a professional speaker, uh, in, you know, over two decades. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. It reminds me of the saying, like your mess becomes your message. Sometimes the thing that you thought hold, was holding you back is really the thing that can propel you forward, which I think is so powerful and so cool when that happens. What do you think is a root cause? of social anxiety. If it's, if we're breaking it down, especially since, like you said, we see it happen with little kids who don't even realize what's happening or who for parents who don't know what's happening for their kids. Is it a fear of what other people will think of you that you think is kind of like the primary cause or what, what is it deep down? That's really the thing that has to get uprooted <laughs> in this process. Yeah. I mean, the main thing is this fear of acceptance. We are hardwired to search for acceptance in our own communities. You know, evolutionarily speaking, it was advantageous to have a group of people around you. You had a better rate of survival. So you have this drive to be accepted into your peer group. And that can put a lot of pressure on you, especially if you've had past trauma. I find that a lot of people who suffer from social anxiety have moments in their childhood or moments in their life where someone or a group of people put them in a situation that made them feel like they couldn't speak up. You know, me personally, uh, I have a couple of memories that may attribute to the social anxiety at a young age, but in, in first or second grade, I do remember a moment where I was sitting at kind of the 
future popular kid table. Obviously, in first, second grade, there aren't really those hierarchies yet, but they would eventually become what were the popular kids. And I was sitting with them talking, you know, at a first grade, second grade level. Um, and one of them decided to kind of poke a little bit of fun at me and, and humiliate me a little bit in front of them to get a reaction. Uh, and it did. And it really kind of resonated with me that, oh, if I, if I go into this group, if I speak up, I'm going to get made fun of. I, I'm going to have a traumatic moment. Um, so subconsciously, as a small child, when you go in a situation and you have a bad experience, you don't want to go in that situation again because you weren't accepted. So that starts to build those feelings of anxiety. You have those moments in your memory where you can subconsciously say, oh, last time I did this, it didn't go well. So now I'm not going to do it again. So it starts to build up that anxiety over time. And for many people who, who don't address it, it only continues to get worse because you have more moments in your life that build up that are unaddressed. Uh, and that's how you really get those profound cases of social anxiety where you can barely speak in front of anybody. Um, so I really think that root comes from that needing of acceptance in your peer group. And then those small pivotal moments in your life where you weren't accepted and you start to internalize them. Yeah. And that's so unfortunately powerful, fortunately for some situations, but in this case, clearly unfortunately powerful because our subconscious is just taking control and taking over in those moments where you literally, like you said, internalize it as if it is true when it's not even necessarily true. It's just the product of what other outside external sources have just pushed at you for long enough that your brain was like, all right, I guess this is what it is. And it's just so sad because it's not what it has to be. And I feel like being able to look at that with that outside perspective and analyze it and go, all right, where, what was the story that was told to me? for so many years that I've just accepted to be a true story that might not actually be that way. And having a willingness to really question it and, and challenge it is like you said, totally key for beginning to break free from whether it's social anxiety or any other kind of anxiety or fear or some sort of trauma that you've dealt with from childhood or whatever, being able to really question it like that is oh, so important. Yeah. And, and one of the big things that people fail to realize is the difference between a traumatic event and a positive event is how you actually react in that situation. As mm. everyone is aware, you know, your close friendships, you probably joke around with each other. You probably make fun of each other. There's a little bit of sarcasm. There's a little bit of tension that happens from time to time, but it's all in the friendship building process. So the difference between someone making fun of you or belittling you and you getting offended and you internalizing that and letting it kind of build that anxiety. And the difference between making a friend is how you react to it. If you let those negative feelings kind of creep in, it's like if you, if you took a punch, if you just take it straight to the jaw, you don't deflect, you don't kind of like go backwards, it's going to hurt a lot more than if you roll with the punches. Hence where that saying comes from. So as you are in those moments where you feel like, you know, oh, this, you know, I feel really uncomfortable. 
remember you can roll with those punches. You can decide to channel that energy in new directions, or you can also decide to leave situations. Too often, we just sit and accept what we are given when we always have the power to leave a situation where we don't feel like we're being respected. And that can have a really big impact on the way you view that outcome. If you decide to take that control, you feel more powerful than if you just sit and kind of accept your fate. And all of those little things can help in rebuilding that confidence in yourself and actually starting to understand your own anxiety. Absolutely. Do you think there's a difference in anxieties communicating with people face-to-face versus online versus presenting in front of a big group where it's just you on front of a stage, a big audience of people? Absolutely. There are 100% different levels of anxiety for different situations. Uh, I actually break down the book into three sections for personal communication, business communication, and public communication, because the, the audience that you're speaking to kind of defines how you speak to them. And I would even throw in, you know, if I, if I was going to present post pandemic, uh, there's a digital realm now and how you present in a digital realm is also different. And each one has its own levels of anxiety. So like when you're speaking to someone on a computer without video, that's a much different conversation. And there's different levels of anxiety than if there's even video involved because you're losing uh, you know, very vital uh, feedback from your audience. You can't see what their reaction is. You can't look into their eyes and understand their own feelings. So when you remove different levels of feedback, the anxiety changes. Uh, and once you get to a public speech where you're getting feedback from hundreds or thousands of people, that's why the anxiety is so amplified. You now have to not only please, but understand hundreds or thousands of people instead of just one, which is a much more difficult process, which is why that anxiety is so much larger uh, at a public speaking level than it is just interpersonally or online. For sure. Okay, now I feel like we probably made people a little nervous because now we're just stressing how stressful and anxiety and I don't know, anxiety inducing it may be for everyone. So drop us some tips for beating it because are there any that maybe span all of the categories or drop us a couple from each category if you would. So whether it's someone who is having that face-to-face conversation just interpersonally, or maybe they've got a presentation at work, or maybe they're doing what you're doing and they're on stage in front of a lot of people. Are there any that kind of stand the test of time and cross category cross categorically help reduce the anxiety that might come along the way? Uh, of course. And though what we just talked about seems incredibly scary and, and may make it feel even more daunting, there's a, sil- a silver lining. And that is talking is talking. No matter whether it's one person or a thousand people, it is the same process. So if you don't feel as anxious in front of one person, then you know you are capable of speaking in front of thousands because it's the same process. So though breaking it down into categories may make it feel like a more daunting task, 
it can also allow you to understand that, yeah, I am really good at speaking to this one person. So I do have the capability to speak to thousands. So there is that underlying kind of silver lining there. The, the other big overarching tip is to understand that your own internal thoughts are not understood by other people. It's called this thing, the illusion of transparency. And for, for most people with social anxiety, I believe that is a huge contributing factor. And that, that illusion of transparency is the idea that your internal thoughts can be interpreted by other people. So when you're sitting there and you're super anxious and you make a small mistake or you're sweating a little bit, you think that your audience fully understands it and fully is aware how anxious you are. When 99 times out of 100, they have no idea. And that illusion of transparency starts to build into this thing called the spotlight effect, which is where you believe that you are the center of the universe, and that every single thing you do is picked up by an audience. And scientifically, it's not. They are also going through the same struggle. They're, they're wrapped up in their own internal monologue. And when you start to understand this illusion of transparency and the spotlight effect, you can start to overcome its underlying anxiety. So as you start to go into your own head and you believe that other people can see how anxious you are, you can remind yourself, wait a minute, they don't notice. I only think that. So you can start to understand your own internal thought process and overcome those feelings. And once you have that control over your own thoughts, you can redirect that nervous energy in whatever direction you choose because it's simply our body's natural fight or flight response. We're in a stressful situation. Our bodies start to release cortisol and adrenaline and other uh, chemicals to get us prepared to fight or flight. So we can then choose to stay and fight. In this you know, example, it would be to stand up and speak. Many times, those same feelings of anxiety can be reinterpreted as feelings of excitement because it's the same chemical cocktail that's in our brains. So when you understand that internal process, you can redirect that surge of energy into a positive direction instead of a negative direction. So those would be my biggest kind of starting tips for any conversation level, whether it's one person online or a thousand people in person, that is kind of where I would start. Yeah, those are great mental shifts to keep in mind for everyone too. I also know in your book, um, I believe you have some tips on just starting conversations in general, like whether you are out and about and you're just trying to increase your skills as a conversationalist and also at the same time, just build some confidence doing so and just having that small talk with people or just kind of saying what's on your mind. Uh, can you share some of those with everyone as well? Because I think that that's, also much more helpful and something that everyone can kind of put into action literally today when they're done listening to this episode and they're, I don't know, in line at the grocery store or wherever, wherever their day takes them. Absolutely. And this is one of my favorite topics because I think so many people crave the ability to start a conversation and there's so much bad information out there. 
pickup lines, weird openers, and they're just so cringy. Uh, so I really sat down and, and tried to understand how I opened conversations uh, because part of my career was a casino party host, which was going from table to table at these huge corporate events and starting a conversation with hundreds or thousands of people a night. And I would do that over and over and over again. And eventually I found kind of a, a tried and true way to open any conversation. And it's based around an empathic statement. An empathic statement comes from the root word empathy, which means to understand and share the feelings of others, which is exactly what you want to convey when starting a new conversation. If someone feels like you understand them, they're a lot more likely to have a conversation with you. So an empathic statement obviously is about that person. So it's usually going to be declarative in nature or a soft question. You want to make sure that you're not just directing something towards someone that makes them feel put on the spot. You want to open the conversation with a soft introduction using that empathic statement. So a good example would be you notice someone who's got on a Nirvana t-shirt. You also like the band Nirvana, so you can go up to them and say, hey, I love your Nirvana t-shirt. Now you've just opened that conversation, addressing a choice that they have made, giving them a compliment, and relating to them even in a small way. So now they understand that you also like Nirvana, or you just like that shirt, and now you've started that conversation on a much easier front. For a more advanced example, you want to start to look for things that you can relate to. The deeper that relationship, the easier it is for the conversation to continue. So a great example would be you see someone grabbing some kayaks off the top of their car. You love kayaking. You know a bunch about it. You also can see that they're deep into kayaking. Now you have common ground. That's what I call the in. Once you have your in, you can craft your empathic statement around it. So you maybe see the brand of the kayak. You have the same brand or you know a little bit about that. You can walk up and say, hey, how do you like your X brand kayak? Now you've shown them interest in something that you know they're interested in. You've shown knowledge about that topic and you've opened the conversation softly so they can enter and hopefully continue it for you know however long you want. But having that flexibility to find a specific in with that individual, craft that empathic statement, you can then create longer, more meaningful conversations out of it, more so than, hey, how's the weather today? Or, wow, did, how was that sports team last night? These are, these are more meaningful introductions than kind of the generic uh, conversation openers that we've heard before. For sure. Do you have any tips for if someone responds negatively to that? Because I'm sure, you know, it being 2022, I'm sure there are still times where people will eye roll or immediately blow someone off as being a creeper or whatever the keys might be, where they're just like, don't talk to me, buddy, and would much rather be to themselves. So if and when you find that happening, what's a quick way to kind of recover where it doesn't necessarily hit at your confidence? and maybe still salvages the conversation if it's worth salvaging. Yeah, so there's really kind of one way to go about it. And first, you have to understand 
you can be the best conversationalist in the world. Sometimes people just don't want to talk to you. And I feel like that is a topic that most books about speaking and confidence overlook. If someone doesn't want to talk to you, you can move on. You don't have to talk to them. So once you understand that, if they give you verbal or nonverbal signals that they don't want to talk to you, first, I would make a joke. Come up with something a little bit funny to break that awkward tension. Then excuse yourself from the conversation. If you really need to continue that conversation, let's say it's a coworker or someone that you're, you're interested in pursuing romantically, uh, you, know, you could then try to recover with that joke, read their body language again, read their maybe verbal communication, but eventually you have to accept the fact that maybe this person doesn't want to talk to you. And that's when you can casually exit the conversation. And when you do it on your own terms, when you make that joke, when you exit the conversation, you can then uh, keep that control in your own mind. So then you're not saying, oh, well, I was shut down. You can say, well, they obviously weren't in the mood to have a conversation. I exited on my own accord. And that can preserve those feelings of confidence without kind of having that crushing moment. Because uh, I get turned down all the time. I'll be at a conference and, you know, I'll go up to someone to have a conversation. And if they don't want to have one, you just walk away. Now, having the ability to do it uh, yourself without having them shut you down, turn away, you know, being able to do that is going to have a profound effect on your own self-confidence. For sure. What about if there's bigger gaps in the sense of now you are on stage and you're in front of people and you have a have a blunder you just your worst case scenario comes to life you mess up you say the wrong thing you're like oh no this is my my nightmare coming to life i'm on stage in front of all of these people and just blew it how do you recommend gracefully recovering there without losing your cool or your confidence along the way so number one is to pause and take a breath too often when we make a big mistake we immediately try to recover and we start talking too fast. We, our heart rate is pounding and we start to spiral. We've all seen that happen. I have it happen to me from time to time. And it's better to take that pause, mentally regain your cool, take a breath, and then you can use a very powerful psychological phenomenon to keep the audience on your side. And it's called the pratfall effect. The pratfall effect says that when you have a mistake or you have a blunder, it actually humanizes you in the audience's eyes. It makes them see you as more human and more relatable. So you can actually call out that mistake. Take that pause, take a breath, and then call out your own mistake in a humorous way. If you tripped falling on stage, you could, you could pause take a breath, stand up and say, well, it uh, looks like I lost that battle with gravity. Now you're back in, you get a small laugh. They understand that you're more relatable and you can pick up where you left off. So understanding that those mistakes that we think are going to crush our, our confidence and lose all respect in the audience actually can make you more relatable and garner more respect from the audience. Uh, and I use that all the time. I, I give at least 
you know, five presentations a week, one of them, there's going to be a mistake. And when it happens, I know that I can call it out. I can make light of the situation and actually get more respect and more and build a deeper relationship with that audience. So don't be afraid when you make a big mistake because you can use that as a positive. There's no such thing as a mistake that's too big to recover from. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think too, that's something where, like you said, people are looking to see how you handle a situation because if it is a mistake that's big enough to be noticed, because like you said earlier, a lot a lot that we think is noticeable isn't even on people's radar. But if you do make a blunder that's like, oh, everybody saw that, now everybody's going to want to know, okay, what are they going to do? Because everyone in their own feeds is probably thinking, oh gosh, I couldn't handle that. I couldn't possibly do what they're doing. So you might build rapport, like you said, just by handling it in a funny way or just letting the show go on as it does, like in show business and just powering through it and still being willing to be up there. People respect that, I think, sometimes in and of itself, the fact that you're still just up there going, all right, we're just going to get through it and we're going to do it and it's going to be okay. And people can go, you know what? Respect. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all about that momentum. Just keep the momentum moving forward. And once you get past that little moment, if you can rebuild that momentum right away, everyone forgets about it. All of a sudden, it's gone. And they only remember what's currently happening. And if you can end on a strong note like that, no one's ever going to remember that tiny thing that you did that was a little bit embarrassing. All they're going to remember is the beautiful speech that you just gave. Yeah, for sure. Any closing tips that you want to throw out at everybody for overcoming social anxiety before we get things wrapped up? Uh, so I always like to mention what I consider to be the first step in overcoming yes, social anxiety, do. which is to change how you identify yourself. Uh, so it's a concept that James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits, kind of came love up him. with. Fantastic author, mm -hmm. love his work. And I found that that idea was more applicable in social anxiety than most people may have thought. And the idea around changing your identity is that when you change how you identify yourself, James suggests that it will be easier to stick to a new habit. And if you want to overcome social anxiety, you're going to have to incorporate new habits into your life. So the first thing you want to do is to stop identifying yourself in negative ways. Many times when you have social anxiety, you identify yourself as a bad speaker or you identify as an introvert, which on the surface may seem like a benign term, but you start to internalize attributes that may come with that title. And this also works on the flip side. Many people who, who are extroverts also have social anxiety, but they deal with it in a different way. They can't stop talking. And I've worked with people on both sides of that coin. So if you start to identify yourself more generally in positive ways, I am a confident speaker. I am a great speaker. Now you have that freedom to be introverted or be extroverted without having the baggage that comes along with those. So you have that freedom now to explore new ways to become a better speaker. And the next time you get up to speak, 
instead of feeling anxious because you say, well, I should be anxious because I'm not a good speaker, you can instead say, I am a good speaker, therefore I don't need to be nervous. So having that change in identity can help you in so many ways as you take those steps to overcoming social anxiety. So I really feel that that is the first step is to make sure that you're identifying yourself in a positive way and not carrying some negative attributes of other labels. And it makes sense that it would have such a profound ripple effect too, in terms of that fight or flight, since it's the same physical feeling a lot of times, and it's just how you interpret if it's flee the situation or stay and fight. That little shift right there can be the thing that keeps you standing confidently there going, you know what? I'm, I'm excited. I'm not terrified. I'm going to power through and be incredible at this. Not I'm going to suck and fall on my face. Like it's, it has a, a very clear ripple effect and a powerful effect that, that can just really take place. If you internalize that and let it become, let it become your reality. Yeah. And they find, you know, in small children, this same effect when they tell kids that they are great at math, they somehow become great at math. When you give these labels to people in a positive way, they start to actually have the attributes of those. So you can see it in classrooms all across the world. As you label students, they will attribute those attributes. Usually they think it's the other way around, but labels have a profound effect on who you are. So be kind to yourself and give yourself positive labels, identify yourself in a positive way. And like you said, it'll have that ripple effect into so many areas. For sure. Well, Marcus, in closing things up, I want to ask you something that I ask all guests on Thrive, which is what does Thrive mean to you and how do you strive to thrive in your everyday life? Oh, over my life, I've had so many definitions, but most recently I have kind of defined thriving as being happy, being happy and content in what I'm doing. Uh, I used to think that I had to, you know, rise and grind and, and put in hours and hours of work to be thriving, or I had to make a lot of money, or I had to have a lot of friends. And now I really think thriving is just being happy and content in your life, wherever you're at. Awesome. I love that. Tell everybody where they can find you online to connect with you more and also where they can get a copy of your book. Don't shut up. Absolutely. Uh, if you want to follow me, uh, I am on LinkedIn. It is just Marcus Bales, uh, on LinkedIn. And if you need to find more information, you want to book me for an event or you want personal coaching, you can visit my website, thespeechadvisor.com. And you can order my book on Amazon, Audible, iTunes, Kindle, and uh, uh, hardcover and paperback. So uh, if uh, you need any more information, uh, you can reach out on the website as well. Wait, before you go, make sure you're subscribed to never miss an episode of Thrive. Drop five stars on your way out if you like what you just listened to. And come join the party on Instagram at thrive.podcast to stay inspired and thriving all week long. Thanks for tuning in. It's your time to thrive.